Welcome to How We Win, the official podcast of The Persistence. Action is the best antidote for anxiety, and we can all make a difference right now. Today, we are staying focused on our work to make sure Republicans don't default on our debt, don't keep censoring and banning books, and don't continue to take away our freedoms and autonomy. It's important work. And joining us to talk about the Latino vote in 2024 is strategist and communications expert Christian Ramos. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Jessica Craven. And And this this is How We Win. Welcome back, Jessica, to another fun-filled episode of How We Win. (laughs) Thank you, Steve. It is delightful to see you. Delightful to see you, too, and very helpful. Jess, uh, Jennifer is traveling right now and couldn't make it, but um, we've got some... Uh, it's another week. It's always another week. <laughs> it sure is. <laughs> they uh, just keep coming. Yeah. Um, so so let's jump right in because we have a great interview with Christian Ramos that we, we literally just finished recording it, and he has so much really great information uh, about historical trends and what to look forward to for 2024 and just great messaging and communications guidance. I want everyone to hear that. So uh, let's just talk about the news of the week. What's top of mind for you? Well, uh, first of all, yeah, that interview is fantastic, and I can't wait for you all to hear it. And, you know, it feels a little like Groundhog Day. We're back in another week of, uh, you know, debt ceiling crisis, and it does not feel that much progress has been made. So I wanted to do a little bit, uh, just a, a quick recap of what our options are looking like at this point as we feel more and more like uh, Kevin McCarthy and President Biden are not going to be able to find enough common ground. And of course, this is largely because uh, President Biden has promised not to renege on a bunch of very important promises that he's made, both with social programs and climate uh, uh, Mm -hmm. actions. And on the other side, we have McCarthy, who is being held hostage by the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the George Santoses, and and sort of in absentia by Donald Trump. Is he uh, really? Um, is he being held hostage? I feel like he's one of the hostage takers at this point. You know, he. I believe he is both a hostage taker and a hostage takee, <laughs> if you can be such a thing. Yeah. He, he's a, a pup. He's puppeting us, but being held. Um, his strings are being held by. Yeah. By these extremists who really, I think, think it would be sort of funny to watch the economy collapse. Uh, I guess it is just a reflection of their sort of um, pathology that they can't connect to how much actual harm that would do to um, uh, so many millions of Americans. So where we're finding ourselves is in a situation where uh, we have this discharge petition, which many of you may have heard of. It was originated by Representative um, DeSolnier in California. And to make a very long story short, it basically is a a tool which would enable Democrats to go around Republicans and raise the debt ceiling with no strings attached, but it would require five to six Republicans to come on board. We talked about this last week, and and when we get to the action section, we'll talk again about how important it is to be calling your representatives right now and urging them to get this discharge petition going, uh, because it really is becoming one of the only viable options. The other one, of course, being the 14th Amendment, which is the amendment in the Constitution that essentially says that the United States pays its debts no matter what. There is some disagreement about whether or not President Biden can invoke this to just raise the debt ceiling if it comes down to it, but we have at least reason to hope that he may be willing to resort to that rather than allowing the nation to default, which, as we have said many times, would really 
there's almost no way to overstate the catastrophe that would unfold if we default on our debts. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it it would be a catastrophe for everyone. It would also be a political catastrophe for the Republicans, even though they just don't seem to learn their lesson or or, or understand that. Um, it's hard to see what their end game here is other than like nihilism and chaos um, because uh, it, it doesn't benefit anyone uh, and it's going to inflict a lot of pain. So I, I hope we get to some resolution, but I look forward to hearing uh, what we can do about it uh, in the Chapwood carry water section. Um, the other thing that I want to highlight was um, our Surgeon General uh, just came out with a profound risk of harm as it relates to social media with kids, uh, citing the the lack of uh, attention and, and research to this. Um, I'm just going to read a little bit from CNN's reporting. There's not enough evidence to determine whether social media is safe enough for children and adolescents when it comes to their mental health, according to a new advisory from the U.S. Surgeon General. I am so glad that our Surgeon General came out with this statement because, you know, if you have kids, if you have uh, school-age children, teenagers, you already know the anxiety and stress that social media puts on our children. Children. Uh, I have a, a young daughter, and um, well, she, I, she's not that young. She's a young woman now. She's going to be 21 in August, so uh, it's still hard for me to wrap my head around. But um, you know, she has a lot of stress and anxiety, and a lot of it can be traced to social media. Uh, the pandemic made it even worse, and. We already know uh, from the disclosures that um, that we have seen from, that we were forced by social media companies to disclose that there was research that they knew about that their algorithms were leading to harm and an increased rate of suicide for our children, and they chose not to act. They chose to keep those algorithms in place because they were making them money. And, uh, you know, our children are at risk. And so for the Surgeon General of the United States of America to come out and, and highlight this is really, really important. And we all ought to take it very, very seriously, especially if you have young kids. Yeah, and especially on top of the sort of unfolding evidence we've seen over the last several months that young people are in a severe mental health crisis. Um it, it is really something that we all need to weigh in. As we know from every, every whether it is big oil and gas or big tobacco, these companies do not regulate themselves. They will not stop committing harm until they are absolutely forced to. And this is one of the many things that government can do. It is why government can be a force for good. Um, as much as Republicans want to, you know, get rid of the administrative state, one of the things uh, governments can do is regulate companies that are harming Americans. And, uh, and in, yes, I think in this case, that's something that needs to be done, for sure. Just so many, you know, really shocking ways we are failing our children in this country. You know, uh, we, we have a, a mental health crisis, a mental health epidemic with our children that we don't want to solve. And Republicans love to talk about mental health, especially as it relates to gun violence, right? Gun violence being the leading cause of death for children, for anyone under 20 years old. And, uh, and we don't seem to want to solve that either. I say we, I mean Republicans. Democrats certainly do. 
So Right, because I will just interject that uh, last week, one of the items I put in my, I do a roundup of good news every week in my newsletter, and one of the things I put in there was that the, the Biden-Harris administration just released a giant new set of initiatives that they are undertaking to improve mental health in the United States, including um, lots and lots of funding for youth mental health, mental health uh, in schools. And this is the kind of thing nobody hears about. And yet mm. it is the kind of thing that is doing real good. And uh, it is really sort of incumbent upon all of us to, I don't know if you want to subscribe to whitehouse.gov and get these, you know, they send out these these fact sheets constantly with stuff the Biden administration is doing. But nobody knows that they're, they are actually taking action on mental health. I mean, a lot of it, of course, is caused by underlying circumstances that the Republicans keep contributing to. But yeah. um Government again can help and is attempting to, but yeah, it's a it's yeah. a it's a thorny problem and a scary one. Well, it's great to see that help coming. We need more, and um, and I'm I'm just thrilled that the Surgeon General highlighted this. Um, you wanted to talk about Florida. Do we really have to talk about Florida? Ugh. No. Florida. No one wants to. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted I wanted to briefly say because this has been on my mind a lot. I have mentioned here. I I'm have sorry a, a for non- people who live. We have listeners who live in Florida who like Florida and who are great people and awesome listeners. So I don't mean to just bash Florida writ large, but I think if you're living in Florida and you're listening to the show, then you understand what's going on in Florida. Yeah, and and what I'm about to talk about, I also want to apologize in advance to Floridians <laughs> because this is a what we're what we're going to talk about is the fact that the NAACP and a couple of other civil rights organizations have come out with travel advisories mm-hmm. saying that they are advising people from marginalized communities whether it's African Americans or LGBTQ people to not travel to Florida. Yeah. And uh, I want to highlight it because, A, what an extraordinary moment we are living in in the United States where something like this is happening. And also, I want to say as the parent of a non-binary teenager that um, I have come to the realization recently that not only will my family not be traveling to any of these states, but I, I, I am going to begin to actively encourage others to consider not doing the same uh, if it's a if it's a vacation and i i recognize that this is harmful to the economies of these states but we have so little leverage against these um this sort of legislative terrorism that i think uh choosing a, a travel boycott you know it's one of the only uh points of leverage we have yeah. and it's well deserved and desantis and the uh republicans in florida are are bringing this upon themselves and uh they certainly uh the whole fight against disney uh spectacularly backfired on desantis with disney deciding not to reinvest in in the state and to you know make plans for expansion other other places and that's going to be very harmful to folks who live there and the economy of that state and um, but that's the bed that DeSantis made. Um, and uh, I also just read earlier today that um, you remember, uh, you know, we've talked about Amanda Gorman uh, on this podcast a lot because she's just absolutely brilliant and so inspiring. Um, in Florida, they are uh, restricting access to her inauguration poem. Yeah. Yeah. I it, mean, I mean, yeah. That literally, that was the inauguration of our yeah. president and, right. and one of the most amazing poems that I've ever heard. Uh, and they're restricting access to it in Florida, <sighs> Florida. All right. That's enough about Florida. Um, let's, uh, let's chop wood and carry some water. Okay. 
All right. So, uh, well, you know, uh, the, what we're gonna I'm gonna give you a simple one today, which is simply this: um, the phone call to our House representatives, and we talked about this last week. But uh, right now, Indivisible, you know, I love Indivisible. I love me some Indivisible. They're an organization I've been a member of since day one. Uh, They have got a call tool right now to make it really easy for people to call their house representatives. So if you're someone who's like, well, I would call, but I don't know their number and I don't even know who they are. This call tool will enable you to you just text the word default to the number five, nine, seven, nine, eight. And uh, they will give you a quick script and put you right through to your house representative. And you can just simply say, like, raise the debt ceiling, like, do not default on our debts. They'll give you a script. And I want to make a special note that um, every Democrat, except for three, uh, have signed on to this uh, discharge petition. The three Democrats who have not, as of this recording, as far as I know, are Mary Peltola, Ed Case, and Jared Golden. So especially if your representative Mm. is a Republican or one of those three representatives, call them and say, you need to sign on to this discharge petition to get this debt ceiling raised and be sure to remind them what's at stake for you. Are are you on Social Security? Are you on Medicaid? Do you receive SNAP benefits? Um, Are you a veteran? You know, every single, do you have a retirement account? We will all be affected in some way and make sure you tell them what that way is for you. Very interesting. Two of the three of those representatives were recently elected in very, uh, very, very purple districts. That's interesting right. that, that uh, uh, they have abstained thus far. But uh, it's a great action, and uh, and thank you so much for that. Um, I have another one for you, though, Steve. One more. Okay. <laughs> yeah, just one more. This uh, I'm sneaking this one in here. Uh, tomorrow is Steve's birthday. Our Steve, this Steve. Um, so he he is, does not endorse my um, saying this, but I'm going to say it anyway. If you you know that Steve is running for assembly in Assembly District 44 here in Southern California, and I'm just going to say if you've enjoyed this this podcast, if you've enjoyed the, I, I can tell you I've known him since the beginning of this whole crazy Trump era, and he has been working his butt off this entire time. Um, Really, I mean that genuinely. He deserves support if you want to throw a campaign contribution at him. I am saying that would be a lovely thing to do for his birthday, and uh, we'll make sure there's a link available for that. Sorry, Steve, had to do it. Oh, come on. I'm not sad about that. Thank you for that. (laughs) I'm a candidate, so I will take that every day I can. I appreciate that. No, you're very kind. And uh, we'll have the link to the call tool, and we'll have the link to my website, PearsonforCalifornia.com in the show notes as well. Um, Let's talk about, uh, we have just a couple of minutes, but let's talk about your reason for hope. Uh, Okay, real quick, I am going to talk about two wonderful calls that I was on last week that gave me a great deal of hope um, for our southern states and for states that typically people throw their hands up in the air and just say, these states are, you know, forget it. They're never going to change. Um, one uh, event was for a, a group called Blue Tennessee. Uh, the other was a surge event for uh, surges showing up for racial justice. And these are two groups. I will put links in the call notes, but these are two different organizations. They're not related in any way, but they are both working to organize in the South um, to to help to eventually change the electoral tide in places where we typically think, oh, just can't be done. And I, I will only say that I want to remind everybody that when you're feeling hopeless, there is little that will give you more hope than jumping on a giant call, seeing 900 other people there talking about, for example, how we're going to win a governor's race in Kentucky Mm. or how we're going to start contesting seats in a state like Tennessee, where did you know that out of the 99 state legislature seats, 60 
were uncontested in the last election. Mm. So these are incredible groups doing amazing work. I'll put, you know, links in the show notes, but there are groups doing such hopeful work. It is, it will take time. These are not victories we will have overnight, but time is an organizer's friend. And so um, I really encourage you to look for groups that are ha- doing this kind of, I call it hope raising, um, and, and get your hope raised uh, by the amazing organizers working in the South. I love that. I love that. And that, you know, segues perfectly into my reason for hope, which is uh, the the election results we had last week, which were, you know, amazing all over our country, including uh, electing a Democrat mayor in the great state of Florida. You know, yes. Jacksonville is a Democratic city. So, yay, Jacksonville. Donna Deegan is only the second Democrat to be elected mayor of Florida's biggest city in the past three decades. And uh, and this just brings me hope because, you know, we saw us pushing against the so-called red wave in the last midterms. And we, and we just keep winning state house elections in red states too. And and that's really key. And, uh, and it's just a good harbinger for, for 2024. So, um, uh, and she yeah. won by she won by four points. May I just interject in a in a race where she was outspent, I believe, four to one. Wow. So, yeah, it was extraordinary. extraordinary Incredible. Win. Incredible. So a lot to be hopeful for. And speaking of hope, uh, a lot to be hopeful coming from this great interview we have with Christian Ramos. Christian Ramos has worked in rapid response and strategic communications for the United States Senate Majority Leadership Communications Center and the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, among others. He's written and provides political commentary for basically every news outlet on the planet, except maybe not Fox. I don't know if you've written for them, but uh, he's chosen. Uh, he was chosen as a 40 under 40 Latinos in American politics by HuffPost and serves on the Millennial Action Project Young Leaders Council. Christian is currently also the campaign director of the Valiente Action Fund, which is a way to win action fund project. Christian, thanks so much for being here. I'm a, a longtime fan, first time talking to you. Uh, I don't even know how to respond to that. Thank you. That's amazing. (laughs) You've worked for many years on the Latino vote, and you've been doing some deep listening with voters throughout the first part of this year. I know this is always an area of interest for uh, people who follow politics. What are some of your top sort of learnings or takeaways from this 2023 research that you are doing? You know, it's really interesting because, like I said, I have been doing this for a number of years, 10 years at least, uh, just on the Latino piece. And you sort of forget certain things. And one thing that I think was really interesting about the research that we, we've seen and, and are doing is, uh, you know, people tend to talk about, you know, Latinos are are strongly Democrat and 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 so on and so forth. But what we're finding, and I think this is is likely because so many Latinos are are turning voting age every year and are sort of apolitical. You know, they much more are like, who's helping me now? Who's helping me now? Right? Mm-hmm. They're grossed out by Republicans. And I think they they have a strong affinity for Democrats, but they are really, really upset about the economy. They are really upset about inflation. And it is a bit of a microcosm of what you're seeing, I think, broadly with the electorate. I, I think if the Republican Party was running the, gov- the government right now, they would have the same problem that Democrats have, which is uh, inflation is something that people are deeply uh, concerned about it. And I think that that's true of, of Latinos, where I think the Latino community is different than the general electorate 
uh, is they are more optimistic. They are more hopeful for the future of, of our country. And they are willing to hear stories uh, and narratives that center them as the heroes uh, of turning the corner on the economy and creating more uh, wealth and, and, and starting small businesses and, and, and sort of providing for their communities. And, and they're very open to it. Uh, do Democrats do a good job of, of seeding those narratives, telling those stories? No, they don't. Mm. They're not very good at that. Democrats aren't very good at being positive, unfortunately, about oh. anything. <laughs> that makes me sad. I'm a, I've, I'm a positive Democrat. I try to stay positive. So just to follow up with that, you know, what's a better way to tell that story? Like what, you know, what's a story that, that resonates? I know all I know all the stories that put, uh, you know, Latinos or any people of color front and center have been banned in Florida, by the way. So uh, we're not allowed to tell them there. But anywhere else, how do you tell that story? You know, it's interesting. Years ago, uh, a, a great organizer, labor, labor, uh, political guy told me something that when I heard it, I thought it was it was I, I didn't think it was that brilliant. Uh, but basically he said, you know, the thing about Latinos in in, in the media and in communications and, and, and content, creating content, they want to be in the picture. They want to physically see themselves as a part of the solution. And as much as they can be the hero of that story, it, it's critically important. And at the time, I thought, well, wow, that's pretty obvious. That's dumb. And then I started making content and, and doing the work, you know, that we're doing with Way to Win and, and Jennifer and... Dan and Kona and, and uh, so many other incredible people over there. Uh, and it dawned on me, we just don't see Latinos as the heroes of these stories in the content that we make for them. <laughs> and I think that's a big one that I would say that it should be optimistic. It should be hopeful. And we should center Latinos uh, as a part of a community, turning the corner, making things better for their country. Latinos are like the most openly patriotic group of uh, the electorate. And so when, when you see them in these stories, when you put them in there and you, and you tell that story with them and Democrats are the helpers, Democrats are providing the, the tools for them to create businesses, to put their kid into college, to buy a second car, to, to get, put their kid in a good school. Those stories are incredibly resonant and and important uh in part because i we don't have that depiction <laughs> in in society as much sadly well and i would just follow up because it's so notable to me that the republican narrative right now is skewing so strongly in the opposite direction that the that especially in florida um we are seeing a narrative which really is 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 uh, I would think would be very antithetical to what you were just talking about, right? I mean, have we seen any impact from DeSantis's attacks on immigration yet? Is that going to work for him in some strange way that I don't understand, or will that not? So you're raising something that's really important and interesting here. Uh, two pieces: one, DeSantis. Uh, you know, he, his national profile is not that big. And I would argue that Latinos, by and large, don't know who he is yet. Mm -hmm. And what was interesting about DeSantis and Republicans in general, their content, their media that they create aimed at Latinos is very optimistic, focused on opportunity, focused on like these very uh, 
Ronald Reagan-esque uh, oh. Their politics that they actually are communicating in Spanish to these communities is all about opportunity, pulling yourself up by the bootstraps, uh, and, and so on and so forth. So there's this delta. There's a huge delta between Ron DeSantis, anti-immigrant, horrible person that he is uh, to the community and the content that he creates and micro targets and make sure that people see. And in Florida, what was fascinating last election cycle, he had like, I want to say five times more Spanish language content. He defined himself to the Latino community in that race in a way that was devoid of reality of his positions and who he actually was. And if, you know, Latin, if, if Democrats wanted to find DeSantis to Latinos now nationally, they have to start telling that story. They have to start investing in the, in the, in the media and the content and the narratives, you know, for at least six months. I mean, possibly the rest of the year, depending, you know, if he's going to be the nominee, uh, it's still early, too early to say, but you know, it, it just takes time. I Latinos, uh, for lack of a better word, are low information voters. They don't really have an opinion about DeSantis. But if DeSantis is constantly putting out these false narratives about who he is and Democrats aren't saying anything, then they're going to have a positive view of DeSantis. And that is often uh, what we see uh, with, with Latinos and a lot of this conservative stuff. Um, we. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, I I do know that the uh, the Trump campaign invested heavily in in Florida and the communications and really uh, outdid Democrats there, no doubt about it. Um, and uh, you, you've just done so much great data. I know you've talked a, a little bit about it just now, but in terms of looking back at what happened uh, over the course of 2016 through 2020 uh, with Latino, because there's been it's been a bit of a roller coaster, and I always, I, I, admittedly, have a hard time having this conversation because I do realize that it's Latinos are not a monolith. You know, you're talking about a lot of uh, very diverse communities, so it's hard to, to talk about that in a holistic terms. But you know, looking at all that data, you know, what, what has surprised you about what's happened since like 2016? What does that mean heading into 2024? So. Uh, I'll take this in a couple of parts. One, I think what happened in 2016 has been overstated regarding Donald Trump and uh, the Latino vote. And when I, when I say it was overstated, I, I think he was in the in the floor in in the toilet, right? He did not have very high approval ratings from Latinos, and and he hasn't really come up from then from their sense. And and I know there's just been this macro narrative between now, 2016, and, and today about the Latino vote. I can very confidently say that Latinos hate MAGA, right? Mm -hmm. They hate it. They hate it. And we've been dancing around this subject, I think, for a little bit because we were talking about Florida. If you want to really parse and understand the Latino vote in the United States, Florida is Florida and the Southwest and New York is where most of the Latinos in the country are. Mm -hmm. And those Latinos, Mexican-Americans largely, they hate Donald Trump. And just from an electoral map standpoint, what has occurred in the last 20, 30 years with Latinos and the Democratic vote from an electoral map standpoint is, is really an incredible story. You're adding Arizona 
you're adding New Mexico, you're adding Colorado. Those were all solidly red Republican states. Right. Once those came over to the Democratic side of the electoral map, it fundamentally changed Democrats' ability to win, right? There's a lot of Latinos in Pennsylvania. There's some Pennsylvania in, in there's Latinos in, in Michigan. There's some in Wisconsin. So as, as Texas, those are just I think Texas, Texas is uh, building Texas. that coalition. Yeah. Nevada. Nevada. Yeah, all yeah. of those used to be like strong. Uh, all of the southwestern states used to be strongly. And now that they've moved over to the solidly Democratic column, I mean, Arizona is, is a purple state, but, you know, it has made it very hard for them to win uh, nationally. And, and I would argue over the last three election cycles, look, uh, they lost 2018, they lost 20, they lost 2022. Um, and I feel confident that if Donald Trump is their nominee, they're going to have a hard time winning, right? They have that bedrock 35 five percent of the of their electorate that is with that guy and and i think uh that's probably around where you know 30 35 percent with latinos as well which is low <laughs> that leaves 65 70 percent for democrats um it'll be hard to get to 70 percent again with florida as it is but if we mm -hmm. continue to hold the southwest as we have it is very hard for uh republicans to win and using the electoral college. See, and th there's see, a Democrat you, being hopeful right there. I just heard yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and do you do you see any hope for Florida or Texas? Because I, I just know this is a question that our listeners are going to have. Those are states that people are constantly, uh, they're repositories of great hope, but also great disappointment for us. So, What was Florida and what was the other state? Uh, Texas. Texas. Look, Florida, I, I really do believe this strongly. We have reached the floor for Democrat, you know, you know, uh, bedwetting, for lack of a better word. Like, I, <laughs> I don't think Ron DeSantis is, as we're seeing on the national stage, is is not. He's a paper tiger, and I think MAGA is unpopular. Uh, banning books, the the don't say gay, all of this stuff. Latinos are grossed out by it. Right. The abortion bans. Latinos are grossed out by it. it you know, if we are able to invest and, 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 and take the time, uh, maybe not this cycle, but, you know, I do three or four cycles from now. I think we can be uh, in a much better place. I, I do think historically there's no question in my mind that people are going to look back and be like MAGA was disgusting and, you know, it was a, a pox on our country. And, you know, uh, I, I think if, if we, we take that time to tell that story in Florida, We'll, we'll define and, and Texas, I think, is a similar sort of beast. I, I think there's been so much investment in the state. And the look, what people forget about Texas is it is already a minority majority right. state. There are more Latinos there. There, you know, not by much, but there are more Latinos in Texas than there are uh, any other population at the moment. And so this is a math organizing investment working and if texas goes they are done they will never be able to win uh using the electoral map again and i, I think that is you know we're a ways away from that but the fact that it's possible i think is really really important maybe that's what it'll take to get rid of our electoral system finally but <laughs> but that would be even worse for them if, if they had to rely on the popular vote so uh they'll they'll cling to that
I, I want to talk you know, really quickly um, about the current uh, Biden immigration policy controversy and um, and how that's obviously it's uh, it's just a, a traumatic and and really heartbreaking situation. Uh, how is that playing out um, for Latino voters, or or just what are your thoughts on what's going on with uh, Biden's immigration policy right now? So. <laughs> This is a tough one, yeah. but I, I'm, I'm going to come at this from two different angles here and feel free to disagree. But um, on the electoral consequences, the border issue as a narrative is a big one with right-wing media. And what I mean by that is Fox News, Newsmax, uh, talk radio. It is a big thing for conservatives and Republicans in those states electorally where it matters the most is for republicans in their primaries mm. they all try to compete with themselves to be who can be the most crazy inhumane you name it yeah. right mm. once it's a general election in in these states they stop talking about it because for a general election in arizona in nevada in New Mexico, people are generally supportive of having people come into and leave the country in an orderly fashion. And then it longer is a very good message for the general electorate. Democrats and independents are very pro-immigrant. Most of the country is pro-immigrant. Yeah. The people that this matters to the most is right-wing media, MAGA, primary voters folks spewing hate to divide us to be you know just to be hateful and divisive right to the degree with which on on the biden side of things you know what what is tricky is and i i may get in trouble for saying this but what i've seen in the polling very clearly in those states is that Again, people are pro-immigrant. They want people to come in, but they want there to be an orderly process. They don't want it to look like it's chaos. They don't want it to look like, you know, bedlam. And so to the degree with which Biden is able to say, well, we're, we're working towards creating an orderly legal process for people to come into and out of the country and leaning into that and being able to have that conversation in a, in a real way, you know, you had Ronald Reagan, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and Joe Biden all believed that we should let people who want to come to this country and contribute be a part of this great American experience. MAGA Republicans, Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, these people want to close the border. We know mm -hmm. what a MAGA immigration policy it is. It's literally... Don't let people of color from countries that are not majority white into the United States. It is literally build a wall. Yeah. And so Biden is is trying to put out solutions. He's trying to, to find a way to deal with a, a bad hand that he's been dealt. But in my mind, there's no there's no real <laughs> comparing these two uh, political ideologies. Right. One is white supremacy. The other one is, uh, well, we have to figure out how to do this in a legal, orderly way. 
And to his credit, we could just add that since the ending of Title 42, we have actually seen more order at the border, right? So that these plans that he put in place that no one thought was going to work, I mean, I'm not saying they're perfect, nothing's perfect about this situation, but we are actually seeing a little bit more order at the border now than we were before under the Trump era policy. Yeah, yeah. if I was going to make any critique of the Democrats at all, we should just be openly pro-immigrant, right? There's, there is a there is a big delta between open borders, which is what the Republicans are saying, and orderly legal process to let people into this country. And I think we we can be more aggressive in telling that story of how we let people in in an orderly legal process that allows asylum seekers and, and people who want to just come and farm or, or you know migrant farm workers to come through and, and, and do a, do that that work and then leave if they want. We should have that conversation. We should welcome it. And I think, if anything, Democrats are too timid in, in in sort of falling into this right-wing media narratives about what's going on at the border. Mm. The United States uh, along the border, those communities, I was born in, in Texas, I was born in El Paso, and I was raised in Arizona. And I can tell you those border communities would not exist economically without the contributions of Mexico and the people coming back and forth and contributing. I mean, it is like right. the same community. Yeah, that's interesting. I I think that 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 is I think we're getting better actually as Democrats about uh talking about what we're for and and standing for something and being bold and strong with uh, what what we discuss, but typically we're just on our heels. We're so afraid to you know to rile up the counter narrative that you know we don't always put our own narrative out there and I think immigration is definitely uh, one that we still do that, you know, we, we used to do that with abortion, right? And we saw where, where that led us, you know, we, we weren't willing to talk about that on the campaign trail because we didn't want to rile up the Republican base and, and now look at where we are. So I, I you know, hopefully we're learning those lessons. And, uh, I think I'm seeing a lot more leaders really talk about what they stand for and not just be on their heels all the time. Yeah. It's a popular position to say that you want to fix the broken legal immigration system from any which way you slice it to be able to say, let's just take this off the table. Let's help people who want to come here and contribute. Let's find ways to, to let them in in a legal or early fact. Like it's, it's funny. I laugh because from a, from a pure polling standpoint, this has been the case for like 20 years. Hmm. It's probably been the case going back to Ronald Reagan. I mean, the, the guy who was the most unabashedly pro immigrant, was Ronald Reagan. So, uh, you know, I don't want to give him too much credit for anything, really. But I mean, <laughs> you know, that is it's a little sad to me. Yeah. And there does seem to be such a narrative that could be shaped of that, that Democrats have been working for a very, very long time to craft rational, effective policy at the border. And Republicans have blocked all of it. And if the message could just be gotten out that what seems to be the Republican goal is xenophobia, racism, and chaos at the border, like, again, it's sort of on top of what you're already saying, that we have the right the right approach and the right message. We are just very shy about, sort of apologetic about putting it out. Yeah, I mean, it's, it shouldn't be. It's interesting because I'm going to marry two subjects here, but it's the everything you're saying is absolutely true. And it's the exact, exact same. So if immigration is the litmus 
test issue for Latinos, right? I'm going to let this person in because they're good on this issue and he's going to come into my my room. The, the, my house, the, the way that we keep them there, the way that we really lock in that vote is on the economy. And it's the exact same thing. Under Joe Biden, he has created more jobs for Latinos than any other president. He has created more small businesses for Latinos than any other president. He has invested more in this community than any other president in modern history, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, all of these things that we have done to help them. And they have no idea. They have no idea that we've done any of this stuff. Spanish, English, Arizona, Nevada, uh, Texas, they don't know. And, and it's really, that to me is a failure. Like when you talk, when I say that we're not optimistic and positive, this is what I'm talking about. Because it, I know that if Donald Trump created 14 million jobs. Every interview he would give, he'd be like, and by the way, did you know I created 14 million jobs? <laughs> it's true. No, small businesses ever. By the way, blah, blah, blah. And it, it's the opposite for us. We're, we we don't say that. We don't just say it. We're like, well, the real unemployment is is, is this and da, 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 da. I, it kills me. It kills me because Latinos, like our community, they hear this stuff and then they're like, oh, well, then it's not very good. It's yeah. not good. It's funny, um, Christian, I'm, I'm actually running for office myself. I'm running for California State Assembly right now. And um, uh, thank you. Uh, and um, my parents always taught me that you did something and then you didn't talk about it, that that's what you were supposed to do. You're supposed to do something good for your fellow human, but then don't you're not talking about it. And I'm learning quickly as a candidate. Unfortunately, I have to like say all the things that I do, but um, uh, you know, th but this is our job, and this is what we say on the show just about every week: is the media is not going to talk about it because they love all the scary stuff that sells soap, and uh, and politicians aren't always great about talking about it. We, as activists and volunteers and members of our community, need to talk about it. We need to let folks know, you know, uh, why these new jobs are coming into their communities, why these infrastructure projects are coming into their communities, you know, and uh, and who's responsible for that. So, well, what's fascinating about this, and I, I can't say this enough, what we saw 2022, 2021, when we did a lot of research, you'd have people. This is just the general electorate. Uh, in say like a place like Nevada, uh, and they would say, "Yeah, I've got a better job. I've got more money. You know, I'm doing pretty good. Thank God the Republicans are out there looking out for me." <laughs> it was because the Republican who didn't vote for the infrastructure, you know, who didn't vote for the Inflation Reduction Act or any of this stuff, they voted. You know, they blanket did not vote for a lot of this legislation that provided these resources. Would then go back to their district, right, and. Oh, I did this. I brought this home. And the Democrat would go back and say, the IRA wasn't good enough and we should have done more. And mm. da, 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 da. And the Republicans over here like, yeah, yeah, no, no, this is really good. I got all these jobs for you. You're welcome. The Democrats are socialists. I got you these jobs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it just kills me because it kept showing, it kept like that kept coming up in the research. And, and that's why, you know, they just talk about this. They never stop talking about all the good stuff that they're doing to help people. And meanwhile, even when they're not doing it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 And it, it, it yeah. It's, it's true with Latinos. And and I feel like with Latinos, I feel like a lot of the stuff we say to them is like, you're, you know, things are bad and you're getting screwed and da 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 da. And they're like, oh, yeah, they are bad. They are getting screwed. Let's vote the Democrats out because the Republicans are saying they're going to fix this. 
Uh, all right. Well, we, we got to let you go, but we have one last question that we ask all of our guests, um, and that's what gives you hope right now? What gives you Well, I'll, I'll, I'll give a two-part answer. One, I have a, a six, six-year-old daughter. She's 26 in June. Oh, nice. That me when I wake up and I, I, I see her running around and, you know, it's amazing. Children, my daughter. Uh that gives me hope for my future. And then I, I think, look, we did a lot of really good things over the last two years, two, three years. And a lot of that stuff is coming online. And we have an incredible story of accomplishment to tell to the Latino community voters in general. And we should be unabashed about it because we did it in the worst possible political environment with people literally attacking our capital with people literally taking away uh, our freedoms or trying to take away our freedoms all over the country. And, and we should just be loud and proud and, and scream this stuff from the rooftop. We are here helping and we want to help more. And, and a lot of good things happened and a lot of things are going to keep good things keep happening with Democrats. <laughs> That's great. I love that. Beautiful. Christian, thank you so much for being here and, and talking to us today. Thank you. You can find me on Twitter, kramos1841. That's uh, that's where I, I'm trying to do more. Okay, great. Stuff. Yeah, follow follow Christian on tw Twitter. Uh, he always has really, really helpful information. And, and um, so definitely follow his Twitter feed. And uh, hopefully we'll have a chance to have another conversation soon. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is How We Win. We win when we all get involved. We want to hear from you. Send us an email at hello at howwewinpod.com or find us on social at howwewinpod, at bluesboysteve, at Kona, and at jesscraven101. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review on Apple or wherever you get your pods and share our show with your friends and family. And there is always work to do, so we will be back with more next Wednesday. 